Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Reading Genesis 6, 9 through 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breadth of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, Two of every sort shall come in to keep uh, into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this, uh, your word and um, being able to learn and to hear uh, your truth proclaimed. And we also thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us your promise and your covenant to live by. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us Jesus Christ, uh, the perfect example, and the, the, the door, the one way, the one truth, one life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. And we've arrived at a very familiar story this morning, the story of Noah's Ark. There's a danger in the familiarness of this story, though, that I want to caution us against. I've got some examples of this uh, for you, because we can see this through a few different lenses. We can see it through the lens of your sort of childhood VBS experience, uh, just sort of a, a simplistic, childlike uh, this is 
a tiny miniature of the ark with all kinds of big animals popping their heads out the top. In fact, I think we have a slide for this. Or we can see it through the lens of the culture around us. We can see it through uh, Hollywood's distorted lens. Uh, whether it is the History Channel uh, misinterpreting Scripture and misinterpreting the intentions of God in Scripture, uh, I wish we could see this slide because I actually found there is a movie out there called Noah's, there it is, Noah's Shark. Can it get any better than that? The true story of Noah's Shark. That's the danger of this familiar story. Even the world has their own take, their own spin on it. But let me remind us in all the scope of what we see out there that is actually bad and misinformation this is the number one it's the story of god's profound judgment on a sinful world let's not miss that let's not skim over that as if it is unimportant this is a story of judgment upon a world genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says the lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually from start to finish only evil and here's the the second truth and this is actually one of the fill in the blanks for you this is the biblical account of the flood and it's a true story that happened to real people this is not a fictionalized account this isn't mythology this is a true story of God's actions and intentions upon the earth and the real life application and consequences for real people Real-life blessing and salvation for Noah and his family. Real-life judgment and death for the rest of humanity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So number one, this is the story of God's profound judgment on the earth. And number two, it's the story of God's great salvation for one man and his family. Look with me, beginning in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So we've been given this, this line of patriarchs, beginning with Adam and then Adam's line. Remember, we've contrasted that with Cain and his line as we've looked in chapters 4 and 5 and seen those sort of develop side by side. And in Adam's line, it's, it's like God keeps picking one son to pass it on. It, it, he had this son. He had other sons and daughters, but we're tracking one line until we get to Noah. One man who stands a stark contrast to the rest of the world, different from everyone else around him. In fact, as the whole rest of the world is sort of sliding on that sled towards hell, Noah is described as a righteous man, blameless, and we're told that he walked with God. So let's, let's think about this just for a second. All right, so kids, let's engage our brains in this room for just one second. Is anyone ever good enough to make God love them? Can you do enough good things to make God love you? To make God accept you? No. How do we know that? We know that from the rest of Scripture. So Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is no righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. So when we're told, come on kids, when we're told that righteousness was in Noah, that he was a righteous man, that he was blameless, that he walked with God, does that mean that he was sinless? No, because the rest of the scripture says that that guy doesn't exist. What we do know is that God had chosen Noah. Just like he had chosen his forefathers, just like he was going to choose those who come after him to be part of God's family, part of God's chosen people. So Noah was not perfect. He wasn't sinless. He wasn't deserving of being saved in the ark because of his good works. If you remember from the call to worship in the Heidelberg Catechism that we said together this morning, uh, the answer to question 60 says, out of mere grace, God imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. So how are we saved as New Testament Christians, all right? So we look back in the past and the cross is there. Kids, how are we saved? By our own good works or by trusting in Christ? Trusting in Christ, that's right. How are the Old Testament saints saved? Was it by their own good works or by looking forward to what Christ would do as the perfect sacrifice? Looking forward. Smart kids. Well done. If you can reach it, pat yourself on. You're young. You can still reach it. It is out of mere grace. Not our goodness. Noah's goodness was evidence that God had given him grace. It wasn't, he was so good that God gave him grace. That was the evidence that God had already been working in him. We're going to see, just like in Abraham, who's going to come after him, Noah believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis eight, uh, 6, verse 8 says, Noah found favor. That, the word favor is actually interchangeable with the word grace. This is the first mention of grace in the Bible. That Noah was given grace, he was given favor, he was given God's blessing out of all the rest of the world in the eyes of God. Oh, for you and me today, John 3.36 reminds us, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects, another translation says, does not obey the Son, will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That was the story for the rest of the world in Noah's time. They rejected God's good news. We're going to be told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For a hundred years, he's building this gigantic boat, nowhere near water. Telling them to repent of their sins, to turn from it, to trust in God. And yet they rejected it. They were under God's wrath. It was coming. It just hadn't arrived yet. And yet look at Noah and look at his family. Verse 10, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Let's just, let's just sit on that for just a second. You'll hear people nowadays say things like, oh, Christians anyways, we're all descendants of Adam. And that's true. Except at, at the flood, everyone else in humanity was wiped out except for Noah and his three sons. In other words, we are all descendants of Noah. Every single one of us comes from the line of Noah. So why bother mentioning this? Didn't it already tell us this? Remember a couple weeks ago, as we were studying through, we got to the end of chapter 5? 
And it said Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis 5 is that whole, it's like the genealogies and obituaries. Uh, So-and-so lived, he lived this many years, he had a son, he died. So-and-so lived, he had uh, a son, he lived this many years, and he died. We've already been told about Noah and his sons. Why bother bringing it up again? Let's think about that for just a second. How many times have you heard nowadays? Usually not from Christians, but occasionally. From a hopeless and godless world around us, this world is so bad, and things are only getting worse. It's not right to bring a child into this world. That's why we're not having kids. Has anybody ever heard that before? This world is so dark, it's so terrible, that's why we're not going to bring a child into this world. Now, let's just contrast that for just a second. Uh, Our world stinks. I don't like the news. I don't like social media. It's just awful. It's just bad news out there. There's no encouragement, and even Christians are complete idiots on social media. Right? Acting as if we are the ones who have no hope and fighting amongst ourselves. So, having said that, is our world worse than Noah's day? No. Noah's day was so bad that God wiped out every other person on the planet in a giant flood. Think about this. Even though his entire world is dissolving and descending into moral chaos, darkness, and evil, what does Noah do? He has godly offspring. Think about it. Things are so bad that God from heaven is going to destroy the earth. And Noah looks at his wife and goes, we should have some kids. We should bring godly offspring into this evil world. And yet notice the condemnation that sits on the world. We're told that the earth was corrupt. That's the problem. A corruption of sin. It was pervasive in everything. Friends, what is the problem in our world today? The corruption of sin. It is corrupting everything around us. Now we can put our finger on a whole bunch of social issues. And those are important. In fact, I think Christians should be standing at the forefront of those. Because Christ came to die to ransom sinners, the ministry to sinners is a gospel issue in this world. And yet the issues are not actually the problem. Sin's the problem. Sin is the evil which the church must fight against. And what was the consequence? So that's the condemnation. What was the consequence of that sin? We're told that the earth was filled with violence. Sometimes it feels like things have not changed all that much today. Every time you turn on the news, violence. Even locally, violence popping up close to home. We see violence today, and we we sort of have two different responses. It it seems like most of the world does everything that they can to not blame the perpetrator. We're going to blame his upbringing, the environment. Was he bullied in school at some point? We're going to bring race into it. We're going to bring inequality into it. We're even going to blame the weapon, but we certainly don't blame sin and the sinner. Are you tracking with me? God sees the violence, and what does he do? This is uh, the second fill-in-the-blank for you. God places the blame for the sin on the sinner. Who's responsible for that violence? Who's responsible for that corruption? 
the sinner. Therefore, God's judgment was brought upon mankind. Look at verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. It's common in our day to hear a very unbiblical assessment of God and where this world is headed and say, well, God that I believe in is just a God of love. They usually leave the word just off, but that's what they mean. I believe in a God of love. And so they they look forward to uh, predictions of God coming and sitting as judge and king over the earth. As Matthew 25 describes, separating the sheep and the goats, uh, those who have rejected Christ and his salvation into everlasting fire, and those who have accepted Christ into everlasting life and joy and blessedness. And they look at that and they say, I believe in a God of love. I don't believe that God would ever judge anyone. Anybody ever heard that one before? They look forward at the end of all things and say, God must accept me because that's the God I believe in. What they fail to do is look backward to the beginning. Not to the God that they believe in, but to the God that Scripture has revealed. There we find that God did exactly that. He destroyed everyone except eight people off the face of the earth. Behold the kindness and severity of God. We dare not superimpose some idea or belief on God that Scripture does not give us. And again, as we look at this severe severe reaction of God, we're actually given, which frequently we are not, but we are given the why. Why would God do this? Here's what we're told. The earth is filled with violence. And yet, in the midst of violence, in the midst of darkness and chaos, look what God does. He gives instructions to his righteous Noah. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Just a little parenthesis here. Uh, We don't actually know what gopher wood is today. Reminder, who is this book written to? Who who is the book of Genesis written to? Was Was it written to us living today? Or was it written to people a long time ago? long time ago. Who wrote it? Do you guys remember that? Moses. Moses. Got it. He was an Israelite. Whoever said that, you were right there too. This was written to the Israelites a long time ago. Did they probably know what gopher wood is? Yeah. Does it matter if we know? Not so much. All right. I did hear one pastor talking about, he's like, God chose this because gopher wood is really, really dense and hard wood. Is it? Because we don't know what it is. All right. Thank you preacher. All right, uh, make yourself, verse 14, an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. By the way, uh, the word pitch, we're not told what that means either, but it comes from the word smear. Just fantastic. Just smear a bunch of stuff on it. It's kind of awesome. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 30 cubits. The breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Did I say 30 the first time? 300. I don't know. I'm feeling tired this morning. Uh, The length, one more time, uh, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 50, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set a door of the ark 
in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third depth. So there's a couple really helpful uh, Christian thinkers who have helped develop this. Uh, Ken Ham has done some fantastic, uh, I think, scientific thinking into what this could have looked like. Uh, Super good. Uh, John MacArthur is another just incredible resource to the church as he has contemplated scripture and has put some of these things together. Uh, Let me give you a quote from him in thinking about these instructions for the ark and this entire uh, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, as we're looking at God's instructions for the ark and then this flood that comes. Here's what MacArthur said. It's noteworthy that in all of, of this, Noah doesn't say anything. His first words are actually when he curses his youngest son and his offspring. Why? Because this passage is not about Noah, it's about God. We call this Noah's Ark. Noah's just the the hired guy who built it. This is God's Ark. This is God's Ark of salvation for his people. Noah is just participating in what God is doing. This would be a pretty straight line to what our community groups have been going through in thinking about evangelism and reaching out to friends and neighbors. And we're just joining with Jesus in what he's already doing. This is Jesus' mission to save. It's not ours. We're just joining in. This ark was not Noah's idea. The idea of this, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, was beyond him. This was bigger than him. This was things they would not know for a few thousand years This was God's ark. God's instruction is to build a three-story floating box and to build it nowhere near water in a time when it had never rained. How do you, parents, do you ever feel like you're explaining things to your kids and you're in this dilemma? Like they just have no frame of reference for what you're talking about. And at some point you go, just trust me, you're going to see. When we get there, you'll see. Yeah, but what's it going to look like? Just wait. I think probably a similar conversation with Noah and God. Just wait. You're going to find out what rain is. Yeah, but, but what's a flood? You mentioned a flood. It sounds bad because everyone's going to die. Just wait. You're going to see. It's coming. It's interesting. Because of technology throughout history, we actually have an actual photo of Noah, his wife, and the ark. I don't know if we can pull that up. <laughs> Keep in mind, Noah was 600 years when they took that photo. Not too bad. I hope I looked that decent at 600. That would be fantastic. All right, so I want you to to look at that and think of the scale, because Ken Ham has built this to scale. All right, so when you, how many of you have been to the Ark in Kentucky? Uh, When you get there, how many of you were surprised by how big it is? You know why? Because you, you've colored one too many pictures as a kid of some tiny little ark with like, like giraffe heads poking out the top. This thing was humongous. Look at your Bible here. It was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits high, 30 cubits tall. That means nothing to you. A, a cubit is about 18 inches. So here's what that translates into. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. And then there was another 18-inch roof on the top of that to cover it and provide ventilation for what was going on in there. Now, it's surprisingly big when you see it face-to-face, lived out. And yet, when we compare it to maybe some of the big cruise ships from our day, it's not, I mean, it's not that big. Consider a couple things here. 
This was the largest boat ever built until the late 1850s. And we find out about this boat in Genesis. This is the largest boat that would be built until just over a hundred years ago because they could not do it. Now today, they're going to build on some of these same building principles that are God's instructions within the ark. But no one had ever built a boat this big, especially in Noah's time, but even until recent times. But why does that matter? Why, why even think and contemplate that? Here's one of the reasons modern skeptics look at this account of Noah, his ark, and the flood as being mythology. Almost every culture has some sort of flood myth story. That some family that was saved through a great deluge that happened upon the earth. And so we look at those and we go, well, you know, every culture has its myths. This Bible story is just another myth. And I would say there's actually really good evidence to say that's not the case. It just so happened that Noah got the magic ratio right. If you're going to keep a gigantic boat afloat, like that, it has to have uh, somewhere between 6 to 1 and 8 to 1 a length to width ratio. Today, modern cruise ships are built upon the same basic ratio that God gave Noah that no one was going to know about for about 5,000 years. Mull that over in your mind. In fact, if you look at other cultures and their myth stories, the uh, Eskimos in their flood myth story, they escaped from this giant flood in their skin-covered canoes in a giant uh, worldwide flood. And yet the, the tops of the mountains were still up, so they got in their canoes and they were able to paddle the ocean till they got to the top of that. Here's what they did. They took what they already knew and applied it and says, well, this is how we would have escaped on the water, but it wouldn't have worked. You can't do that. You would be lost at sea. The Babylonians had their own flood myth, only rather than building on what they knew, uh, they built on what they did not know. And in fact, their, their boat of safety was not a giant rectangle, it was actually a cube, which would be a disaster on the water. Right? That would just be tumbling in the ocean. So you have myths that are based on what they knew, things that they did not know and they got horribly wrong, and then you have a biblical account which is the only one that is the unsinkable ship. Engineers have looked at this basic design of the ark and said literally the only way that this thing could sink is if it tipped completely straight up and down and it would have to stay there and then drop down in. Because it is so long, it's greater than any one waveform that would happen on the ocean and therefore it's not rocked and tipped over by the waves. It actually sits down in the water it wasn't designed to go anywhere, it was designed to float. And it was enormous. I told you, no one even attempted to build a boat like this until it was about 1859. The square footage inside, I don't know how big your house is, the square footage inside of the ark would have been about 100,000 square feet. That's equal to it. I was going to Goshen the other day and I got stuck at a train headed into town and uh, watched boxcar after boxcar go by. Have you ever done that, going into Goshen, and then they get slower and slower? Then there were about eight to go, and it stopped. Oh, God help us. 
Uh, the size of the Ark is about 522 boxcars. All right, MacArthur helped provide some of this thought. Uh, somebody a long time ago figured out you can fit about 240 sheep inside of a boxcar. That sheep isn't, that's not a small animal, but it's not, a, it's not a huge one either, right? It's a nice medium size. 240 sheep can fit into a boxcar. That meant if you were going to pack them in, and I mean pack them in, you could put 125,000 animals inside the ark. This is not the little picture you colored in Sunday school when you were eight years old. This is massive. It is meant to float and not tip over and to carry a whole lot of cargo. There's more than enough space for two of every uh, land-dwelling, breathing animals, especially when we're talking about species. Did you notice the, the use of the word kind that was in here? We saw that back at the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that they were to reproduce after their own kind. And now we find on the boat this one after its kind and this one after its kind. It, it doesn't have to be every animal. You don't have to bring every species of dog. You just have to bring two dogs. And out of that, the genetic diversity, you will have every species of dog. Again, Ken Ham has done a masterful job of thinking through this. Uh, I would just commend that to you. If you haven't gone, uh, invest the time, go and see it. Look at verse 17. God's going to speak to Noah. Up to this point, we've been given sort of the narrator view as God looks and sees the world and uh, sees the evil and has purposed within his own heart that he will destroy the earth. But now he's actually speaking this. He's communicating it to Noah. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die just pause on that verse for just a second contemplate the weight of that verse just a second how many of you have loved ones right now that you care about only they are far from grace they are running from God they are rejecting the gospel and you cry out to God oh God have mercy oh God save them these people were no less valuable than your loved one is today. God said, I will wipe out everything that is on the earth. They shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. Oh, in the midst of a hopeless, dark situation, God promises a remnant. God promises to save his own. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So God speaks to Noah, and he speaks three basic things. God's plan, God's provision, and God's promise. God's plan is I will destroy the earth. I will destroy every living person. I will drown them out, man and beast alike, from the face of the earth. That's a devastating, horrifying plan. I, just, I, I keep wanting to pause on this because we read so glibly over this, as if this wasn't the worst news we ever heard. That loved one 
that you have been praying for and reaching out to, if they do not get on the ark, they will perish. If they do not come to Christ, they will perish. Friends, that should compel us to love and proclamation of the gospel. Every chance that we get. God's plan was destruction upon the earth. And yet, there was also God's provision in the midst of it. God looks at Noah and says, here's the blueprints for the box, for the ark. The, the, the word ark literally just means the box. An ark of safety. This Hebrew word for ark that is used here is only used in reference to the ark of the flood. It's a different word when we come to the ark of the covenant, the box of the covenant that God's people are going to carry around with them. This is only used one other time outside of this story, and it's Psalm 29, verse 10. Oh, here in this, the sovereign king of the universe, as he says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. What was the flood? It was the worst imaginable outcome for humanity. And who was the one who was superintending over all of it every moment? God, king of the universe. And then he gives his promise. So his plan, his provision, his promise. Dad is so proud of me. Three points and they all started with P. Here's the promise. As sovereign king, I will save you and your family. He didn't have to. He could have just started over. Yet, everything we've read up to this point in, in Genesis, God is choosing a family. He's choosing a line, and he says, I will preserve you. Yet, think about how God is going to get Noah and his family on the boat. He's going to do it by removing every other source of hope from the planet. There's no other way to save yourself. There's nothing on the face of the earth that you can do to save yourself Get on the boat. If there was any other hope, come on, people, wouldn't we try it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying about, about God and trusting in Christ, but I think I'm doing pretty good on my own. And if that doesn't work out 10, 20 years from now, I'll, I'll check it out. Man, how many people have that idea today? God removes every other source of strength and hope and says you're either on the boat or you're off. You're either in or you're out. So Noah entrusts himself and his family into the hands of God. Noah had no idea this thing would float. I mean, he followed God's instructions, right? Had he ever seen a boat like this before? No, it had never even existed. It wouldn't exist for a few thousand years after either. And yet he, verse 22, Noah did all that God commanded of him. Yet even as God is going to wipe out creation, look at God's care for the rest of creation. Look at verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. There's a joke I'd like to make right now, but I'm going to keep reading. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to keep reading. Uh, verse 20. Of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Ladies, the idea that spiders exist today is because God saved them. 
All right, just keep that in mind. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. In the midst of God's destruction of every breathing, living thing on the planet, can you see his care for that which he loves, that which he preserves? There's a remnant that is kept. There's a care even for animals around us. Now, sometimes we get talking about this, and then we get, we get sort of into political sides. We choose one side or the other. Uh, and sometimes those discussions get all kinds of weird. I, I remember uh, when PETA came to Shipshawana to protest the livestock auction that happened there, and we were all worried, like, oh, no. I, I, there was meetings at the police department, like, what kind of weirdness is going to happen? Uh, luckily, it wasn't, it wasn't all that bad. Uh, and yet God cares for the animals. Luke chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? In other words, for basically nothing. Yet not, not one of them is forgotten by God. Matthew, in his parallel account of what Jesus is saying there, says not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. Even just the birds, God cares for them. God feeds them. God provides for them. Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus attributes the feeding of the animals to God himself. Not nature, not natural processes, but God's love and care for that which he has created. Oh, again, note the kindness and severity of God, the loving creator who cares for what he has made and the righteous judge and king who will not tolerate wickedness. So verse 22 says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. We learn more about Noah, about who he is, about what he thinks. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear. The, the Genesis account doesn't give us any of Noah's thoughts, intentions, or heart posture, but Hebrews is going to say that his obedience comes out of reverent fear for God. He constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And yet there was, there was two sides to this. If he's going to obey God and build this ark to save his household... Just simply by doing that, by exclusion, the scripture says he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Again, you're either in, in the ark, in Christ, trusting in God's salvation, or out, you've rejected it. You've said, I want no part of it. I'm pretty sure I can save myself. Well, next week we're going to see how that plays out for a wicked God-hating, God-rejecting world. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but it doesn't end great for them. And yet the power of grace. As Noah finds grace, he finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. God's grace to call his own and to keep his own. That power belongs to God. I found a, a quote just in closing here by John Calvin commenting, one of the most prolific commenters on scripture upon this passage. 
Here's what he said. It was a remarkable instance of constancy that Noah being surrounded on every side with the filth of iniquity should hence have contracted no contagion. I thought having come through the COVID time, that was a really interesting turn of phrase. He's surrounded by it everywhere, and yet he's not contaminated. No one's able to infect him with it. If at the present time the morals of men are so vitiated and the whole mode of life so confused that the probity has become most rare, still more vile and dreadful was the confusion in the time of Noah. Has anybody ever heard that thing where they're like, oh yeah, we've gotten so smart and so evolved because we have the Google webs. How many of you even know what the word probity means? Anybody? One person, and it's only because we looked it up. <laughs> probity means a strength of moral character. He, he says that the strength of moral character has evaporated. It has disappeared from the world around us. And yet Noah's world was worse. That's the translation. For those of you who are like, I don't understand what John Calvin's saying. Noah, when he had not even one associate in the worship of God, in the pursuit of holiness was able to follow hard after God. Listen to this last line. If he could bear up against corruption of the whole world and against such constant and vehement assaults of iniquity, no excuse is left for us. Oh, the whole world was against him. He stood alone. That's how most people on Facebook act today. I'm the only one. Everyone hates me. Everyone's against me. That was actually true for Noah. And here's what happened. He stood up under it. He obeyed God. He honored God out of reverent fear. And therefore, no excuse is left for us. Worship team, if you would come. As they come, I want to caution us against uh, a really bad habit that we have with passages like this. It's called eisegesis. It's when we read into the text what we think and believe about what either is going on or what should be going on. Right, let me give you a couple examples of this. We read ourselves into the place of Noah, and then we say, listen, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm trying hard. Why is God going to save you? Man, because I'm giving it a go. Right? I'm, you know, I'm really trying. I'm a better person than I used to be. I, I do less bad things. I say less bad things. I, I'm really working on myself. Therefore, God will love and accept me. I'm, give, I'm giving it a solid 75%, you know. God's got to take that, you know. He knows, he knows I'm, I'm human. He knows I'm not perfect. That's the first part of Jesus, reading ourselves into that text. And then here's another one where we read other people, but we don't read them in as Noah. We read them in as uh, the God-hating, God-rejecting rest of the world. And we say things like this, I'm pretty sure that you are the godless heathen that's going to be swept away in the flood. And then you, you think somebody, and you're like, I only wish they were here to hear this. I wish they were here to hear, destruction is coming to you, my friend. That's, that's eisegesis. That's us reading ourselves or somebody else into the text. Rather, let's draw out of the text what God has put there. The reason for that is Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance... Through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have 
Pope. So no applications about the coming flood in your own life and the six easy steps that you can take to overcome it. No guilt-motivated altar calls of the impending flood. You better hurry up and get on the boat. Here is the call. Trust in Christ. Christ alone, our salvation. It's where we began this service. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is the ark of salvation that God has given. Trust in him. As God leads you and guides you in righteousness, trust in him. Obey him. Some encouragement to talk about this, either as families or as individuals. Why do you think that God decided to destroy the world rather than giving everybody, quote-unquote, a second chance? Why not just come and have a stern, fatherly talk with everybody and tell them to get their act together? Don't make me count to three or a flood's coming. Right? Why, why did that happen? Another question for discussion, what made Noah different from the rest of the world? Especially families with kids. Go back over what was God's plan, what was God's provision, and what was God's promise. The reason to nail all three of those is we so often hit the last one and maybe the last two. Man, God loves you. God's got a wonderful plan for your life. God wants to save you. That only makes sense if we know the plan, if we know what was coming. Because this isn't just a story of antiquity, but a picture that the New Testament writers are going to use as a coming destruction and of Christ our only salvation, pray together and ask God to help us to trust his provision of safety and salvation in Christ alone. And pray for those who you know have rejected that, who right now are rejecting that, that God would save them. And the same thing we pray for our kids every single week. God, open their eyes. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They can't see it. We're praying, God, do something supernatural. Not make them good enough or smart enough. God, peel off the blinders that they might see. Every week as we conclude our service we come to the table of the Lord as an active, living out representation of exactly that. That we were dead in our sins, hostile towards God, when God put on us the grace of Christ. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. You're not a Christian because you got smart enough to go to church. It's because Christ saved you. Christ ransomed you. He paid the debt that you could not. So every week we, we act this out. We remind ourselves it is not because of anything I have done. It is the body of Jesus that was broken for my sin. It is the blood of Christ that has paid the full debt of my sin. But that is actually not just something I take with me, but it's something that is in me. So Jesus said, every time you have an opportunity, do this in remembrance of me. Yet this is a demonstration of faith for believers only. So if you're here and you're not a believer, man, we're super glad that you're here. I think every time an unbeliever has an opportunity to hear the gospel, to hear someone challenge them and call them to trust in Christ, it's a good day. And yet the reality is the more that we learn to turn off that message, anybody ever gotten to the place where you listen to political things? If you're a Republican, anytime a Democrat speaks, you turn them off. 
If you're a Democrat, every time a Republican speaks, you just turn them off. I actually heard somebody rather recently, they, uh, they made a mistake and unfriended almost everyone on Facebook that they had uh, as friends with. And then when they realized what they had done, they're like, eh, most of those people were probably Republicans anyways. <laughs> friends, that's the danger when we come to church as unbelievers and hear the gospel and we get really good at just turning that off that our hearts get hard and we actually lose the ability to hear. And I would beg you today, hear the good news. Trust in Christ. Examine your heart. That's what Scripture is going to say, that anyone who comes uh, wrongly to the table of the Lord, not trusting in Him, maybe harboring sin within your heart, rather than eating and drinking blessing, 1 Corinthians 11 says, eat and drink condemnation on yourself. So let's stand together. Let's just take a moment, examine our hearts before the Lord. And here's the call. There's no fancy music. There, there's no dimmed lights or emotional altar call. Just a challenge. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sin. Put all of your hope, all of your trust in Him. Get on the boat. God, right now, we pray, come examine our hearts. Shine the light of truth upon every darkened corner. Lead us to look without excuses, without negotiations, face to face at the sin that lurks within us. To renounce it, to repent of it, and to put our hope in Christ alone for our salvation. Would you just stand for just a moment before the Lord, examining your heart, confessing sin. If you haven't done it before, trust in Christ right now. And then as the worship team begins to lead us, would you come take the elements back to your seats and we'll take them together in just a moment. But for just a second, stand before God. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.